Welcome, one and all, to a little thing we like to call the Good Judgment Podcast. The episode notes for this incredibly entertaining and informative episode that you are about to consume are available at goodjudgepod.com. That's goodjudgepod.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Good Judgment Podcast. I'm Wade Pudd. And I am still, as always, Tanko. You know, while we always welcome episode topics from our loyal listeners, Tane, there are times when something we handle in court generates a new episode idea. Yeah, you know, now that I'm retired, I still have ideas that are just not related to cases that I heard. Yeah, Tane's ideas range from which Chick-fil-A to visit to which beach yep. to visit. If I get any more points at Chick-fil-A, the Kathy family has to adopt me. Anyway, yeah. Um, anyway, back to today's episode. So we are frequently asked as Superior Court judges to consider name change requests. Yeah, and these sorts of actions uh, can ask you to change the name of an adult or a minor. Because these come up with some frequency and there are different rules for the cases depending on the age of the moving party. We thought it might be a good idea to kick the tires on this topic. Also, we have recorded some rather long episodes in the recent past, so we thought a shorter episode might be a welcome relief for our loyal listeners. Kick the tires? Really? Anyway, regardless, let's do get to the episode. So go right. ahead, Wade. Tell, tell the people where we start. So people, people who come to court Tain occasionally, they seek to have their name changed or to change the name of their child for a variety of reasons, Tain. Yeah, like the guy I had whose middle name was Jack Daniels, all one word. Like his given name? His given name. Like who Jack did Daniels. his his mama must have hated him. You know, it seemed like a good idea at the time. <laughs> so most of the most of the reasons that people want to change your name are valid and it makes sense just kind of on the face of the petition. There's all kind of things, misspellings, all kind of things, Tane. Yeah, and occasionally some name changes are filed when the petitioner is seeking to change his or her gender identity. I mean, that's that's becoming more common. Sometimes, Tane, and I don't know if you experience this very much, but sometimes the name change request for a minor is sort of a shortcut to a step-parent adoption or a shortcut to a legitimation, depending on which side files it. Did you have those? Hey, you know, I don't think I really had one of those, Wade, but I know I, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, exactly. We, we have them pretty frequently, and it usually coincides with the non-payment of child support. Yeah, it's amazing how that'll happen, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, unfortunately. So interestingly, yeah. Tane, people who get married sometimes assume the surname of their spouse. That situation yes. does not require the change, the filing of any sort of name change petition. That's not something you have to file a petition for. That's right. And uh, one more general thing about name changes, and this is largely misunderstood by legislators and others, in connection with a divorce action, if requested in writing by a party, the judge has the authority to restore a party's name to their quote-unquote maiden name or to a prior quote-unquote married name. Yeah, we can't we, enter wholesale name changes there. Yeah. We can't get we rid can't of Jack Daniels you the last as your name middle you, name. Right, we can't give you the last name you wish you had or, yeah, give you a middle name you always wanted. It's, it's usually just like a that. surname in a, in a right. divorce. But that's already in the law, so we don't... There was some concern last legislative session that somebody sought to change and give probate court the authority to make name changes following a divorce only in a very unique circumstance. And I think the probate judges said, no, nah, we're good. Yeah, no, thanks. We're, we're all right on that. And but then once we showed them that it already exists in the statute, I don't think it became a problem. Right. And, and regardless of the motivation behind the filing, 
the only way to legitimately have a name change is to follow the statute that allows for name changes to be granted. And that's what we're going to talk about. So let's talk about the statute, Tane. Reading law during a podcast is not awesome. And, right. Tane, so and let's be and, not awesome. And every time a statute is cited, an angel gets his wings. Yeah, so, I mean, we're caught in a catch-22 here, Wade. I mean, on one hand, it's not awesome, but on the other hand, Angel gets its wings. So, OCGA Section 19-12-1 is the name change statute. Hit them with some of the uh, some of the words from that statute, so Wade, preferably any, in order. Any person desirous of changing his or her name or his or her child's name may present a petition to the Superior Court of the county in which they reside, and it has to be Superior Court. The petition shall set forth fully and particularly the reasons why the name change is being requested. Now, Tane, is this one of those petitions that has to be verified? Indeed it is, Wade. Tell, tell uh, the people what a verification is. Yeah, so, you know, it's one of those things you think might not be a big deal, but verifications are sworn statement that everything in the petition is true and inaccurate, signed by the petitioner um, in front, usually in front of a notary public. And why that's important in a lot of cases and cases like this is um, once something is, is, is sworn, it can usually be used as evidence. And it also indicates that there's some importance to the information that would be contained in that petition about, for example, why you want to change your name. And then the statute sort of concludes in at least this first section with a provision that says that the notice of this potential name change must be published once a week for four consecutive weeks in the legal organ of the county in which that petition is pending. So as always, Tane, our authority as judges to do most things we do comes from a statute. This stat tell the people sort of the shorthand, what does this statute require? Yeah, it's pretty simple. First of all, it requires a petition to superior court. That petition must be verified, which means it has to be signed and notarized as being true. Uh, except where the petitioner is a victim of family violence or human trafficking, then that petition must be published in the legal organ of the county uh, once a week for four weeks. So these are the mandatory requirements, even if petition is only seeking to fix a spelling error or something else, quote unquote, simple. Now, Tane, this statute specifically has, a, a, I guess, a special provision for people who are victims of family violence or victims of human trafficking. Right. There is an exception for that. If the if the court finds that the petitioner was a victim of family violence or human trafficking, um, the, the judge does not usually see one of the petitions until after the case is filed and assigned. And so the, you might say, well, how does the court go back and order that that case be filed under seal? And there's actually some discussion of that in the in the statute. And Tane, basically you would go back and order it sealed in the age of e-filing. I think that's much easier than in the age of, of handwritten documents. I think it's a touch of a few buttons for the clerk, but the it's going to be filed initially because it has to be assigned to a judge. Typically it doesn't have to be, but typically it gets filed and then assigned to the judge. And then the party would go and say, Hey, my client was a victim of family violence or my client was a victim of human trafficking. And they would ask to seal it and you can go back and seal it. You don't really know who made a copy of it in the meantime, but it, it, it does. It can happen pretty quickly, almost simultaneously, honestly, with the filing of the petition by the clerk. Yeah, in the modern age, um, 
I mean, you understand the reason behind that, which is, you know, with folks out there who are victims of violence and, and human trafficking, they don't really want to be found by the people who, who are, you know, meaning them harm or, or have caused them harm in the past. And so, uh, you know, as a judge, you're going to have to look at that uh, hopefully quickly uh, and also, you know, fairly and, and make that determination to, to help protect people. So under... 1912.1c, it says the court must, if the court determines that the petitioner is a victim of family violence or human trafficking, the requirement of publication can be waived, that's judge's decision, and the case can be filed under seal. On the other hand, Tain, if the judge finds that petitioner was not a victim of family violence or was not a victim of human trafficking, it basically everything that's under the statute must be followed. You have to go back and publish and it's not filed under seal. Yeah, and don't make, don't misunderstand. You don't dismiss the petition because that's not the case, because that's not the, the the reason for filing the petition. The reason for filing the petition is to get the name changed. So um, let's talk a little bit, Wade, about uh, the filing of name changes on behalf of a minor. It's, it's fairly common for people to file a name change petition seeking to change the name of a minor or someone under the age of 18, which is the statutory definition of, of who's a minor. And they're um, all kind of some... different. The, the rules here are different, Tane. Yeah, right. So, yeah, talk, talk about that. Maybe maybe it's more accurate to say there are additional rules. All those other rules apply and this. And this right. is where— Right. It has to, st- still has to be verified, still has to be filed the same way, still have to have publication. But, yeah, there are some more rules for, for a minor. You and I have talked on our podcast, our little podcast here in the past, about certain things that end up in um, not actual fistfights but legal fistfights. And this is one of those things that sometimes can get there. The most or notable actual change, fights might also happen. <laughs> there might be some of those. Hopefully we don't see them. Yeah. The no. most notable change when we're dealing with a minor is that the parent must be served with a copy of the name change petition. Now, interestingly, yeah, this, stat- this statute doesn't say legal parent, doesn't say yeah. biological parent. It just says parent. Right. And so, so if there's a difference there, all parents. <laughs> Legal and biological, I guess, will have to be served. So the statute provides that if the address of the parent is known, Tain, and that address is located within the state of Georgia, the parent must be personally served with a petition. If that parent's address is not known, services must be service must be accomplished by the publication that's already required anyway. That's right. Now, to be clear, the petition for the name change of a minor has to be published, as we just said, except where the petition petitioner is found to be a victim of domestic violence or human trafficking. The statute simply makes an additional requirement of personal service on the parent if or parents if the parents reside within Georgia and the address is known to the petitioner. Now, you know, you and I have seen so many petitions where they say, I don't know where they are, and you know darn well they do. Um, like they're already receiving uh, child support from them or, you know, they have, I have asked, ways of finding them out. I have been asked to know, to ask, I have been known to ask people if they had a million dollars of yours, could you find them? And that usually goes, well, I know where his mom lives. Well, okay. exactly, yeah. <laughs> have you tried? We actually have a little affidavit that we get when, when these kind of things, when they allege that they don't know where people are. We have mm-hmm. an affidavit of what they have done. They did they check social media, et cetera, and what they've done to We do the same affidavit yeah, it, of diligent search. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Folks, we'll be right back after this pause for station identification. Folks, this is Wade and Tane. You're listening to the Good Judgment Podcast on the World Wide Web or wherever else you listen to these things. 
As always, you can find outlines for these podcast episodes as well as any supplemental materials on our website, which is goodjudgepod.com. We'd love to have your feedback about the podcast, and we get that at our email, goodjudgepod at gmail.com. We're always looking for suggested podcast topics. Please feel free to submit your suggestions to us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com. Operators are standing by. And remember, if you like what you're hearing, don't forget to like us and follow us on your favorite podcast platform. And tell your friends it's how we get to grow our listenership. Thanks. And now back to our studio audience. Now, it... it the flip side of that is if the parents reside outside of the state of Georgia, they must be served via certified mail or statutory overnight delivery. Again, if that parent's address is known, if, if the address is unknown, the publication requirement satisfies the service requirement. Now, I've always found that a little a little funny because if, if they're not within the state of Georgia, publishing it in the Marietta Daily Journal in Cobb County is probably not going to get to work to it. But the idea is, well, you know, their mama might see it and their mama might say, you know, hey, uh, they might have a Google, you, but they might have a Google people, alert set up. I know people who read those things yeah. every day. Yeah. And I'm thinking, what kind of life are you leading if you're reading those every day, mom? <laughs> so, Tane, there's one <laughs> other requirement that usually is where all of our litigation begins in the area of name changes with children, and that is. The name change of a minor must have the consent of the other parent or the parents if they if a third party has custody. That's right. And so, uh, the statute yeah, the ahead. statute requires that the parents consent to the name change of a minor in writing, assuming that the parent is not deceased, unless the parent has been deemed to have abandoned the child. And that's that's a legal abandonment. That's not uh he just stopped coming by or whatever. <laughs> Failure to require consent by a parent is absolutely reversible error. Believe it or not, some of these have been appealed. And denying a name change petition without affording the party a hearing is also reversible error. So if you're going to deny one, you need to at least afford the party a hearing. If they choose to not appear, that's on them. But you need to afford them a hearing. And just skipping the consent part is also reversible error. Now, Tane, you talked about abandonment. Tell the people what abandonment means in this context. Sure. So in this context, uh, in the definition section of 1912-1, the term abandon is defined as, as set forth in OCGA section 15-11-2. Every time a statute is cited, an angel gets his wings. All kind of wings. A lot of wings. A lot of wings going out today, Wade. It's kind of exciting. Um, 1511-2 says, prior to 2021, a child was deemed abandoned if the parent had not contributed or provided support for the child for five years immediately preceding the filing of the petition. But something happened in 2021. Wade, that statute changed. It did. Now a, chain, a child is deemed abandoned if the parent has not contributed or provided support for the child for six months immediately preceding the filing of a petition. So you may ask yourself, Tane, self, if you're asking yourself, self, hey, self, why is it important whether the child has been deemed abandoned or not in this context? Well, Tane, what's not required if the court finds that the child had been abandoned? Consent of the other parent, Wade. And that is usually vitally important in these cases. The next thing you may be asking yourself is, hey, self, I got another question for you. Yeah. 
<laughs> what is it, Wade? Why do I have to talk like that? That's not very nice. Your head, inside your head, that's exactly how you talk. I've heard it. A court determines whether the next thing you may ask when you may be asking yourself is how would a court determine whether that child has been abandoned? So this judge, me, I require a hearing where the petitioner gives sworn testimony, unless it's consented to in writing, where yeah. the petitioner gives sworn testimony under oath as to the facts relating to the support of child or lack of support of child or lack of involvement with the child. Tain, a thousand years ago when you were a working man, did you require the same thing? Yeah, we did. Something like that. Uh, you know, what you hope is if you've got a lawyer who files this petition who's really on the ball, that they've already alleged this in the petition and that has been verified by their by the petitioner already. So you already have some sworn testimony that there's been an abandonment here uh, so that you've got a kind of a jump on the idea that, okay, maybe we're not going to be talking about consent in this case. But yeah, I'd absolutely require the same thing, Wade. So, Tane, let's talk about procedure for granting the petition. Unless you're dealing with domestic violence or human trafficking, after the publication has met the statutory requirement and that's been filed, if there's no objection filed, the court may grant the petition, quote, in chambers, i.e. without a hearing. And the following time periods must have passed before you sign the order. If it's an adult name change, 30 days from the filing of the petition. That's the same 30 days, about 30 days that the publication was running. Two, right. if it's a minor child, if there was service upon the parent, 30 days from the date of service. Finally, if there's a minor child and the parent resides outside the state, so the only thing we're doing is publication, it's 60 days from the date of service. Those are the only real, I guess, waiting periods applicable here, Tane. Well, and, and let me just insert there, 60 days also if the parent resides outside the state and service was accomplished by mail. So if you knew where they were and you served them, it's still 60 days yep. before. I guess it's to allow people to hitch up the covered wagon and, you know, Get the, the quill from Texas. Yeah, yeah. exactly. To, to you know, uh, uh, oppose the petition. Now, Tane, you're not going to believe this. I know you're going to find this shocking, but there are a few appellate cases on this topic. Yeah? Yeah. Where the court well, granted, where the trial court granted or denied a name change petition and the decision was taken up on appeal. So we really don't intend to go through every factual scenario because there's a bunch of very unique situ situations. But yeah. We want to point out a couple of these big trees in the forest, Tane. Yeah. So... If a timely written objection is filed, the court, quote, shall proceed to hear the matter in chambers. That was that was something you said just a minute mm -hmm. ago. Um, but note the appellate case discussed previously where it was found to be error to deny a party a request or a hearing. So the law so, provides, Tane, you can do it in chambers, but if somebody needs a hearing, you got to get out of your chambers. Right. Right. You got to actually go to that courtroom, find your way in there, blow the dust off everything and uh, and actually have a full fledged hearing. The law provides that no name change shall be granted adult or minor if filed, quote unquote, with a view to deprive another fraudulently of any right under the law. So, Tane, pretty broad. Yeah, there's some good ones. <laughs> uh, it, it, and, you know, we're going to touch on a couple, but there's some really good ones in this case law if you uh, if you go through and look at the cases. So let's talk about a examples. couple of them here. Yeah, yeah. So where an inmate files a name change following a conviction, it's not an abuse of discretion for the trial court to deny the petition for name change. The appellate court noted that a change of name in this scenario, quote, might result in confusion and allow the inmate to disassociate himself 
from his prior criminal record. And, you know, that makes sense. So where a transgender petitioner sought a name change from a traditionally female name to more gender neutral names and or traditionally male names, that is not fraud. The procedures required under the statute were followed. There was no evidence to suggest that the petitioner, and there was actually two petitioners in this case, were acting under any improper motive against any specific person. And they had no intent to defraud any specific person. And oh, by the way, no objections were filed. The name changes should have been granted, and it was reversed on appeal. And again, those cases are cited at the end of the outline, uh, and you can get those on goodjudgepod.com, so don't forget that. So, Tane, at the end of the day, give everybody sort of at the end of the day. So, if the proper procedures are filed, uh, the only question that the judge has to decide is whether the requested name change is being sought with intent to defraud or for some other improper purpose. On appeal, the standard is an abuse of discretion. And the quote of one of the cases says, a trial court has broad discretion to change the name of a child and the court's decision will not be reversed unless it clearly abuses its discretion by ignoring the best interest of the child. That's as it relates to a minor. The same would be true with an adult. So, Wade, I mean, let's admit it. Broad discretion is what we desire as judges, right? So, you know, that's one of our it's favorite It's not standards. unfettered, but just really broad. Yeah, really, really broad. So so, so there's some takeaways for all of this. So if, if you're, you're dealing, dealing with a name with a, change, yep. If you're dealing with a name change. Let's say it change, together, Wade. You ready? If you're dealing, dealing with, with a name okay, change. You go ahead. If dealing with a name change, consult OCGA section 19-12-1. If the petition seeks to change the name of a child, understand that consent of the parent or parents must be obtained unless the court finds that the parent or parents have abandoned the child. Even in cases where abandonment is alleged, the parent must be served, whether personally, via mail if outside the state, or via publication if the whereabouts of the parent is un- or unknown. Yeah, publication of the requested name change is required, uh, even where service is required. So even if you're serving somebody by mail outside the state, let's say, you still have to do the local publication as required in in essentially every name change. So that's all for today's episode. If you'd like to hear your idea discussed by Thing 1 and Thing 2, uh, reach out to us, please, at goodjudgepod at gmail.com. This outline is full of citations to authority that can be found on our website, goodjudgepod.com. So folks, you know, we've sort of started a thing recently where we end... Uh, a lot of these podcasts with music trivia. And that's really because Wade knows how much I love music trivia and he allows me the time to expound upon this. So our music trivia ending this week deals with a great band, a great band, probably one of my favorite all-time bands that had a lot of tragedy. The Allman Brothers Band, uh, which was based in Macon, Georgia, uh, and, you know, they truly created uh, some great music, uh, that Southern rock sound of the late 60s, early 70s, um, was was uh, largely made uh, you know, national by the Allman Brothers. But the band's namesakes were the brothers Allman, Dwayne and Greg. Dwayne and Greg's father was in the Army, and he, unfortunately and sadly, was murdered by a hitchhiker in 1969 when Dwayne and Greg were only toddlers. Dwayne himself died in a motorcycle crash on October in October of 1971, that has been pretty well chronicled that happened there in Macon, Georgia. Uh, the band's original bassist and one of the founding members of the band, Barry Oakley, 
also died in a motorcycle accident almost exactly one year after Dwayne's death. Those two fatalities occurred uh, within an area only three blocks apart, and both men were 24 years old when they died. They are both buried in Rose Hill Cemetery in Macon, which is also where Greg Allman is now buried, uh, right alongside his brother and, and Barry Oakley. Uh, and I have actually visited that cemetery and those grave sites on more than one occasion. Uh, one tragedy you might not also be aware of, Wade and, and listeners, um, is that the band's uh, road manager, uh, a guy by the name of Twiggs Linden, um, actually died in a skydiving accident uh, during the time that the band was in its really heyday and, and doing incredibly well, uh, and Twiggs Linden was killed. So not the most lighthearted factoid you will ever get from this podcast, but you know what? Now you know. Thanks, folks. Thank you for listening to the Good Judgment Podcast. We try to give you actionable information in a format that does not make you want to jump in the creek. Two thoughts on that. One, some topics allow us to be have a little more room to have fun. But number two, if we failed you, we'll do our best to do it better next time. We know that you have lots of choices, and we're honored that you chose to spend this time with us. We're kind of amazed, to be totally honest. This podcast began as a project that was initially the brainchild of Doug Ashworth, the former executive director of ICJE. Thanks and appreciation to Mr. Hinnerberger and the entire University of Georgia College of Law. Thanks to Mr. Stephen Turner and his company, Turner Up Media, who helped to add it out some of our stupidity and awkwardness, but hey, nobody can get it all. Thanks to our unsung hero, Mr. Kevin Holder. You are instrumental in our podcast being published and made available to the public. We should have been singing your praises since we started this thing, but we didn't, so... Wade and I are eternally grateful to the Council of Superior Court Judges who allow us to lead new judge orientation for the Superior Court Judges across Georgia. Tane and I are also very grateful to the State Justice Institute who have been instrumental in our success in that they have provided grants to help us get this product to you. You know these are our opinions and do not reflect the opinions of ICJE, CSCJ, SJI, or the University of Georgia College of Law, or anyone else for that matter. Contact us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com for any praise. Contact somebody else for any complaints. But seriously, we would love your feedback, both good and bad. Send any comments to goodjudgepod at gmail.com. But seriously, send the bad comments to Wade. Visit our website, goodjudgepod.com, for all of our episode outlines and more details about our podcast. Some of you send emails asking for copies of these outlines. These outlines are available 24-7, 365 at the website goodjudgepod.com. You can upload them, download them, or otherwise use them as you wish and on your schedule. Once again, I'm Wade Padgett. And as always, I'm Tane Kell. Thanks for listening.